Okay, well, welcome back, everybody, to the Academy of Management's um, review origin series in, in which we ask the question of where does theory come from? Uh, in this series, as we've done up till now, um, we uh, engage with authors and author teams of papers who have um, upcoming or forthcoming papers in the Academy of Management Review, so accepted for publication, and try and find out a little bit of the backstory to the paper, what the paper's saying, what the theory's um, putting forth, and understand a little bit of a, the nuance of how that paper has evolved and the story behind everything that's gone on. Um, so today we've got um, episode 22, um, in which we're going to explore uh, this uh, upcoming paper called A Place in the World, Vulnerability, Well-Being, and the Ubiquitous Evaluation that Animates Participation in, in Institutional Processes. And even though that sounds like quite a mouthful as the title of, of a paper, I can guarantee you that once you've read it, you'll understand that each and every one of those words have been carefully chosen and have a lot of meaning in terms of what the theory is putting forth. So it's a, a, um, it's a fascinating paper. And in order to, to talk through it with us, we are joined by Doug Creed, Brian Hudson, uh, Gerardo Ocasen, and I'll probably butchered that name, that name and Kristen Crow-Smith. They tell me they've got a long history together. They're a friendly group. And so I'm, I'm eager to know more. So before we dive into the paper, I would love to know just a little bit of the background of the four of you, your collaboration, how you connected with each other, um, because it's clear from the citations that this isn't your first time writing together. You've written together in the past. You're uh, from all over the world and uh, hence getting a, um, a time to do this interview was a little uh, 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 challenging in the sense that we're working across multiple time zones, and yet you seem to collaborate in a really productive way. So can you give us a little bit of the backstory to the connection between the four of you? I was working on a project at the University of Texas at Dallas where I did my degree, and one of my professors, I needed to go to San Francisco to collect data. One of my professors knew somebody who lived out there and arranged for him to put me up. And so I flew to, to, to San Francisco, and that's how I met Doug. And I think that was about 94. Probably. I, we were just, just I, I was just finishing my doctorate at that time. So we've, we met a long time ago. And I think Bryant introduced me to Gerardo. It's Gerardo Oquisen. <laughs> Is that correct? Uh, but... Uh, and, um, and then when Gerardo invited me out to Utah to give a paper, that's when I met Kristen. Yeah, and, Doug and, I, and Bryant and I met when I took my first job at the University of Texas Dallas, where he was finishing up his, his, his PhD. But, um, but for me, the place where I remember the three of us meeting together for the first time was back in the dark ages, there was a um, caucus for LGBT uh, folks at the academy. So this was um, when there was a caucus before, you know, before you can become an interest group and so on. That, that and we were sitting, we were standing around a table, and it was the first time that we actually got a chance to meet. Yeah, Kristen and I were colleagues at the University of Utah. We were there together for several years, and so that's part of the way in which so all of these introductions happened. Well, thank you. That's uh, that's 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 fascinating, and it uh, it was clear in the writing and 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 just in the citations that uh, you 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 knew each other, you worked together in the past, and so I was intrigued by that backstory. So we've got this uh, uh, fascinating AMR paper, a place in the world, vulnerability, well-being, and the ubiquitous evaluation that uh, animates participation in institutional processes. And I'd love to get each and every one of your just short sort of two or three sentence or maybe four or five sentence elevator pitch of what is this paper about? And maybe we can just go in the, the order in which you're listed on the paper, which um, I suspect might just be alphabetical. I, I, I don't know. Um, but, uh, but because it's in that order, Doug, we'll start with you and just ask, what's the paper about? Well, 
it's an extension of stuff we've been doing on how emotions figure in institutional processes. We wanted embodied people to be present in institutional understandings. And, uh, and we wanted to have a better understanding of why people invest themselves so much in institutional processes, either as challengers or defenders. Um, so uh, we had worked together on a, a 2014 paper in AMR called Swimming in a Sea of Shame. And uh, in that context, we were looking at the communities in which people were embedded. Uh, one reviewer said, oh, expand this in the first round. We expanded it. And in the second round, that reviewer said, oh, I made a mistake. You're going to take that out. And so we had a whole bunch of material that had, you know, um, piqued our interest, but which was excised from the paper. And we thought, what are we going to do with that? So that's one way of thinking about it, where we were concerned about having an understanding of people in institutional processes that reflected that insight from Hallett and Ventresca that were doubly embedded in institutional systems of meaning and in relationships, and that was embodied in some way. Awesome. So people, institutional processes. Brian, how do you how do you take that a little bit further and sort of get to the nub of your insights in the paper here in terms of your sort of elevator pitch? So I, I think what we're trying to elaborate is sort of combination of, of motivation and how people navigate um, their lives and their relationships within the context of social structure, within the context of, of institutions. And so trying to sort of understand why do people do what they do? What are the motivations? What, 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 how, do, how do institutions constitute behavior but then, and action, but then also how do we drive behavior and action uh, interrelated on the ground where we live kind of way. And so I think exploring this from the kind of concerns and, and vulnerabilities and ability to thrive and those kind of aspects uh, about how we navigate those relationships within that social structure sort of helps us to understand and we hope adds clarity to others as well. What are, why are people doing these things? Gerardo, one of the things I picked up on was that this is you're not you're not just remaining at one level of analysis, but exploring this sort of in an interrelated kind of way. Can you maybe help elaborate on what what Doug and Bryant have said, just in terms of of that and 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 what sort of unpacks in terms of this these these levels of analyses? Yeah, absolutely. Because I think that one of the challenges that we have as a field is that we always it's easy to think abstractly at the macro level with organizations or institutions. And it's easy in some ways to think concretely about individuals. And it's in the connection between those two, between the micro and the macro that a lot of stuff gets lost. But it's also where most of social life happens. And so part of what we are trying to do is without, without getting into simplifications at the individual level and without giving into simplifications at the, at the macro level, engage that messy, messy middle. The interactions between people, the way in which that touches into, in, into people as persons, as complete whole persons, but then also the way in which that touches into the macro order as a really valuable system of meaning, as values that, 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 help, to, that help people make sense of the world around them. So I think that this interconnection between levels is, is for me one of, the, one of the fundamental things that this paper does, is that it provides a language and it provides a set of processes that people can use to think through uh, the phenomena that we see in everyday life. So the language that, the, the, and, uh, that, that I digested from it is this notion of the embodied world of concern at more of the individual level and the shared world of concern at more of the uh, more of the community level. Kristen, can you maybe just elaborate on those two concepts and um, what in essence are you getting at with those two concepts and why are they important from an institutional sort of um, standpoint and, and changing the conversation around institutional theory to some extent? Well, the embodied world of concern really gets at the individual and the sense of real people and how they really are living their lives. And, um, you know, as Brian was saying, why, why are they doing any of the things that they're doing? 
Um, so the word embodied, I think is especially important because it's about, um, you know, these feelings that people have about vulnerability and about the possibility of thriving or the possibility of suffering, which is so fundamental to our human experience. And then the shared world of concern, I think really gets at what Gerardo was saying about that messy middle piece. That's people coming together and doing things more collectively. Um, you know, and it's interesting to think about what motivates people to join in collectives. Um, I think from an institutional theory point of view, join, um, reproduce, maintain, challenge, all of these things, really, it makes sense to all of us that that's got to start at that embodied level and then move upward. Thank you. So, so the, the, the term world of concern, can, can one of you elaborate just on how did you arrive at that, that, that term and, and, uh, and, and decide on it and sort of anchor on it? Because it's clear to me that you're providing a new, uh, uh, an alternative sort of set of, of, of theoretical apparatus or, or just perspective and the, the concept of world of concern is something I at least had not seen in the institutional literature before, yet it's got this ring to it and, and, it, and it bridges, it allows us to bridge these two, two different levels from the messy middle down to the individual. Um, and so I'd just love to know, how did you arrive at it and, and what's some of the backstory to that? Um, I think I can address it. We're highly influenced by Sayre's Why Things Matter to People. And uh, he frames that idea of concern uh, as the animating um, as the animating construct for why people uh, care about things. Um, and we, we were just very taken with that. I wanted to, uh, I don't wanna take this down a rabbit hole, but one of the things that I think was important for us moving into this is that we'd always been working on issues having to do with trying to understand how challengers from the margins uh, challenge institutions which actually have great impact on their well-being. So, you know, I was I did research long ago on GLBTQ employees trying to get domestic partner benefits, obviously something that had um, material and emotional impact on their well-being. And, and Harado and Brian were working on stigma and the uh, resistance to stigmatization. So uh, we were, I think, really aware that people have something at stake or can have something at stake in institutional processes. And the world of concern just seemed a, a, a beautiful metaphor for trying to encapsulate those complex stakes, which can be for the self and for the family, the community. Um, and uh, it just spoke Hello, to us. Sorry about, <laughs> Sorry about that. No problem. So, so it's, this, it's, it's this metaphor that really allows you to anchor on the person and the people around that person and the things that they care about. Um, and uh, has a a, a, a a sort of inkling back to to their history and what may have impacted them to their current sort of position of vulnerability and and, and desire for well-being um, and and hence prompts them to think about things and and, and take action in different ways Is well, that sometimes so, so, yeah I mean I think you're, you're saying and part of what you're picking up on, is that this is complicated because people's lives are complicated and the world is complicated. And part of what the world of concern tries to do is to, is to have a theoretical apparatus that, that tries to capture that complexity, but still provides explanatory uh, value, right? I mean, sort of like this, this, you can't have simple theories for complex processes. Uh, and, and so that's a little bit about where this comes from. One observation is that, you know, we talk, we talk because of who we are and because of the orientation of something like the field of management, we talk a lot about people participating and people not participating, people resisting, people defending. 
But there's also a lot of people that just go along. And part of what gets, we wanna make sure it doesn't get obscured is that this also helps explain why people choose to sort of lean back when there are moments, when there are things going on and, and, and their well-being is not threatened, their sense of vulnerability or the vulnerability of other people around them is not activated. And so that's why there is, it's not exactly an indifference in the way that people sometimes portray it. It is that it's, it's, it's an evaluative state, but it's also a state where given everything that is going on, this is not a moment when I am going to actively step in. Right? And I think it's important that we don't only look at the edges of defending, uh, of defending and attacking, but also this middle of why it is that sometimes people may appear indifferent, but we argue they are not. They are not indifferent. So um, who would you say is the target audience here? Which, which scholarly communities are you intending to speak to? And is there a, 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 a broader sort of audience for some of these ideas that, that, that ultimately over time, maybe it gets translated to um, in terms of the sort of notion of this 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 idea of world of concern and it operating at different levels who which well, which scholarly audiences would you think would pick up on it most quickly and then maybe if it continues to proliferate who might pick up up on it next and next and next and so i'd love to just know um you know who who do you have in mind when you first write it and then how in a in a in, a, in an ideal world would it pro proliferate yeah, one of the things here is that this is where this is where really the the very different perspectives that each one of us in the author team brings to it. I think each one of us has a thought about where it might go. I think initially um, we're very much rooted, as the paper shows, in institutional work and the work that people are trying to do in that space. We think that that'll probably be this will probably be most useful and most relevant to that community uh, most immediately. But, you know, I mean, some of the work that I do is in meso-level processes around groups and teams, for example. And there are elements of what we write about that I think um, are eventually of use to that community. So I don't know if, if others want to jump in and, and talk about other communities that whom this uh, will eventually be picked up by. Well, I think we would also like besides the, the emotions in institutions, institutional work, inhabited institutions, um, institutional theory is no longer a unitary theory. There's, it's so fragmented, there's multiple institutional theories. Uh, but I think we want that community also to, to pay attention. Um, how are we treating people? What are we going to do with people uh, as Hallett and Petruska, um talk about? Uh, and, and so the broader institutional community to pay attention. I think my work in organizational stigma, I'm seeing more and more work being done that is also cross-level analysis uh, in terms of, of stigmatized populations as well as stigmatized organizations and, and people. And so I think as we grapple more and more with those interactions, I think this piece could also be informative of how stigmatized people um, collectively and individually navigate that social world that we were talking about before. I would say too, um, sorry, Doug, I would no, say no, too, um, in terms of what I do, which is more of individual level morality and organizations, I didn't think this paper would be really interesting to think about from that point of view, because um, it gives us a way to, to think about the individual embedded in these social configurations. And also um, something that I think a lot in terms of, about a lot in terms of ethics is the, the likelihood that people are often probably doing things that from an objective perspective we think are wrong, but they may be doing them for quote unquote good reasons. Um, and so something uh, from our paper um, that kind of helps explain that is this idea of vulnerability and seeing the possibility of your own well-being and thriving in communities which from an outside perspective seem very deplorable, like our um, example we used of Chris Picciomini. Um, you know, it's interesting to think about that sort of philosophically that people are doing lots of terrible things. It's not 
their motivations may not be so foreign to us, even though when we look at their behaviors, they seem unimaginable, unexplainable, and may actually explain, you know, be explained by the same reasons that people do lots of good things in the world too. So I think that's very interesting to think about from a morality perspective. So by putting people, understanding the, the context within which people are operating, how they're seeing their world, their world of concern and the communities within which they're interacting, behaving in immoral ways or, or ways that we may perceive as absolutely unethical, suddenly starts to seem a, a little bit more plausible when you uh, encompass all of the things that you're talking about here. Yeah. That's, that's very interesting. So Doug, you alluded to it a little earlier that this project was has some roots within a prior AMR paper that you published together um, and evolved from that. But it's, it's clear that it's been influenced and informed by a lot more than what happened in 2014. So can can you maybe give us a little bit of the a little bit more of the backstory to the paper and how it evolved over time and then anyone else can jump in and, and add to that so that we can understand you had this AMR paper in 2014 there were some elements of it that 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 didn't make the paper there was an opportunity um, and you've evolved it to the point of initially submitting it, I guess, in about 2018. So there's quite a long life cycle there, and I'd love to know just a little bit about that. Well, oh, I think I think it might have been in 2017 that we first submitted, or I can't even remember. But it, um, gosh, that's a long time ago. <laughs> you think, want me to take a crack, Doug? Sure, please. So, so you know. It, it, uh, Greg, one of the things that happened is that we, we did end up, I mean, with the comments from the review and the previous paper, we ended up with these six to eight pages of material that actually, once we had started to engage with it, we really liked it. And then we, we went to a couple of conferences and we presented those, in, those really very early ideas and people really liked them. People really, really liked them. But there were problems with those ideas. Um, in particular, you know, if you use the language of community, which you'll notice is, is not really very present in this paper, as soon as you say the word community, immediately it gets reified into what community, who's in, who's out, uh, you know, identification becomes a part of it, uh, membership, you know, and it's just all of these things that, that immediately lead you to try to simplify the problem. And I think for that reason, we sat on it, um, uh, for a while, because we didn't, we ourselves didn't have the language to break out of that. Mm -hmm. And I think this is where Doug actually, uh, with his engagement with Sayer, uh, he started to think about, oh, look, here's, here's a way in which we could talk about social bonds. We could talk about it in a, with, in a dynamic way without abandoning notions of belongingness, notions of attachment, notions of growth, notions of uh, 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 of the self-developing. And, and I think that that's what gave us the lever. At least this is this is my take on it. Um, but now, I don't know, Brian, Doug, Kristen, anybody wanted to add, disagree, embellish? I wanna, I wanna say one of the reasons why it's hard to respond to these questions is that um, every time we get together, the conversations are so generative that um, it's almost like explosion, explosive um, creativity. And to try to you know, isolate the threads is almost impossible because you know, each conversation um, would get, uh, new insights would tumble out and we'd have to make choices about which to integrate most clearly and that kind of thing. I, I think it's, when we said earlier we we work together very well, um, it's really amazing how much we just enjoy each other's minds, and uh, I, and I think that so that's one of the reasons why it's difficult for me to say that we just listen to each other and think generatively. So and, I, I, I and also disagree, and, and also disagree pretty vehemently. <laughs> <laughs> 
So there's a lot of value in what you're saying and what you're sharing here. One of the purposes of this podcast series is to empower and, and highlight some of the nuances and uh, uh, complexities and interrelationships that sit behind a paper that's beautifully written and that comes out and it's been edited and, 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 and looks so slick um, to its readers is to recognize that um, number one, um, you, you, you may go through, through times where you get told to cut certain material or discard certain material that may still be valuable and you may just not have the, the nugget that you need to turn that into something of value. And so number two, continue reading, continue engaging with different material such that something might reveal itself that allows you to turn that into something of even more salient or greater value. And number three, and I think probably most centrally to what you're saying is for any scholar, particularly someone who wants to, to be involved in generating theory without necessarily going out there and, 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 and empirically testing it or, or and, 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 and sort of be on the, on the, on the cutting edge of, of theorizing is find people who you can work with who are going to um, be generative in the interrelationships of those conversations. I think there's such important lessons in that, in, in that more junior scholars or younger scholars want to sit in their room and write theory um, without this kind of inter engagement. And just the dynamic between the four of you is illustrative of the importance of that dynamic and, and the willingness to disagree with each other or push back on each other's perspectives and, and, and stress test some of those ideas before mm -hmm. they sit in front of reviewers. So I think, you know, you, 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 in what you're disclosing, you're sharing really valuable insights for the audience of this podcast series. Yeah, I wanna add one thing though, because when you say like, oh, we get together, it's very generative. It's like, oh, we're sitting around having a beer together or something like this. Um, I have to say that both in the 2014 paper and this paper, while their generativity, the crafting process is arduous and very long. I mean, when in the, the months before we return this, we will spend, in different subsets of the group, one-on-ones, uh, 20 and 30 hours a week for five or six or more weeks and go through sentence by sentence saying, is this what we want to say? Is this true? It's, it's, um, we are, it, it's crafted because we really want every sentence to say something. Um, is that fair, guys? You know, uh, so it's and, uh, yes, we're very generative. We're very something else. And, too, and right? whenever and if and if one of us rewrites a sentence because we think it's not clear, we always make sure that somebody else can that that knows it, if we're worried about changing meaning, if we're worried about slipping into a habit that we don't want to do somebody else will call it out. And, and I think that that's very important in a paper like this, where at the root of it really is avoiding simplification. And, and because each one of us comes from a different intellectual tradition, um, we are both prone and alert to different pitfalls in our spaces. And so we're in a good position to uh, we're in a bad position to judge ourselves, but we're in a good position to alert others. And can I just add to, I'm sorry, Brian, <laughs> to um, Doug, what you were just saying about breaking up into subgroups and working together. Um, partially, I'll just say this as a very nice memory that I have of working with Doug, but I also just want to mention it because it just as a concrete example of what he was talking about, Right as the pandemic was hitting, I remember Doug and I were on the phone, maybe we were using Google Docs or something, and we literally, I'd never done this with another co-author in any paper I've ever done, but we literally were reading a section and writing the section or revising the section together on the phone. 
And so um, I just wanted to add that concreteness because when Doug is talking about working together, all other papers I've ever done are much more like, you know, each author takes a turn revising. I've never sat down with somebody like that. And it was fun um, and, you know, um, I think it was a nice way actually to enjoy each other. I mean, I think that's what this is. It's just like the great thing about our jobs is we can do research with literally anyone we want to. Um, and that was a really nice way to enjoy each other as part of the process. I, I want to respond to that because you had asked about the use of the memoir. Um, so in particular, what we were focusing on was the selection of passages from the memoir and interpreting those passages because, you know, I had, I first heard of uh, Chris Piccolini when he was being interviewed by Terry Gross on uh, Fresh Air. And um, it's one of those things in our theorizing, something falls in front of us and we say, wow, this is relevant, this is useful. And we've been wrestling with whether we should use Black Lives Matter or a variety of uh, macro issues for which there, which were aspects of our own worlds of concern and our shared worlds of concern. And it was getting overcomplicated. And in one of the revisions, people were saying, you know, this, these, these, there are too many illustrations here. So we, we landed on the memoir as an incredible encapsulation and, and a moving encapsulations. And so we thought, if we're going to make people experience what we mean by an embodied world of concern, maybe we should use an illustration that hits hard, that actually moves the reader. Um, without being self-aggrandizing, I think we aspire to giving people goosebumps at times. Well, th that was certainly the experience I got in reading the example, so much so that I went and looked up the book and looked up who Chris was and sort of read his Wikipedia page. And so, so I do want to, I did want to double click on, 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 on that particular point. Um, and so I'm going to bring up just for the purposes of the people who are watching this on YouTube, a, a copy of the book cover and a copy of Chris. Um, and, and I'd love to get just a little bit more backstory on the memoir, uh, on, on who this individual is, on, on what his story is on the memoir, and then on how it influenced your writing um, and your ability to be able to bring your theory to life, um, not in an empirical way, but in a concrete, just exemplar kind of way um, for the purpose of writing the, the, the AMR paper. So I'm going to bring up um, a picture of the book and a, a picture of Chris and, and, and then just allow um, anyone who wants to to elaborate a little bit on number one, his backstory and number two, um, uh, uh, how it influenced the paper. So here's a copy of the, the cover of the book, White American Youth, which is a memoir by uh, uh, Christian P Piccolini. And um, and. Uh, um, you can tell by the subtitle of the book, My Descent into America's Most Violent Hate Movement and How I Got Out. And this is a, a central example in the paper that you revisit multiple times. So maybe you can just start off by giving us a little bit of backstory to this actual memoir, to, uh, to Christian and to his story, and then to how it influenced the paper. Well, the story of Chris Picciolini is that he grew up in Chicago and from an early age was kind of disaffected, um, not, not really had, he did not have a secure sense of belonging, not with his family, not with the community he lived in. Um, he moved at one point from an Italian neighborhood. His, um, his grandparents were immigrants or maybe his parents. Parents and too. The parents too, thank you. And then they moved to a more affluent white suburb. He didn't fit in in the new suburb. He lost his, you know, sort of sense of connection with his Italian roots from the Italian community. Um, and so he presents himself as somebody who was just sort of vulnerable. Um, he did not have a sense of community. Um, and he had some experiences early on, a schoolyard fight meeting with um, one of the 
most important at that time figures in white supremacy in the Chicago area. And he started to find a way to feel good about himself and to have a sense of belonging, which was through violence and this association with the white supremacy movement. So that's how he got into it. And he moved, you know, never really um, close with his family. He just moved further and further away from him. This was all when he was a teenager. So he was still literally a child living at home, um, but just uncontrollable by his parents. Um, and he, dissent is a good word <laughs> for that. And I don't know if you want to add anything to that, Doug. Well, to, to link it to the vocabulary of world of concern, he was unanchored. Um, and the white supremacist movement created a world of concern for him. So his, remember, we linked the idea of a personal body, embodied world of concern to a shared world of concern. He was unanchored and vulnerable. And the first anchoring shared world of concern that he um, found himself in was this white supremacist movement, where he found some sense of purpose. And you see him um, shoulder incredible activities in bolstering that the institutions of the white supremacy movement, particularly when his mentors get sent to jail, he becomes at 16 or 17, a national leader of this movement. Um, so at one level, you see him engaging in incredible institutional work animated by what he believes are is the well-being of the people who are important to him, who have become this circle of um, disaffected white youth. But so then it's a, it's, it, it's a fascinating story of him getting in, but then also him getting out of that. And I think you 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 are able in the paper to show how his world of concern changes or he recognizes an alternative world of concern, partly through being married and having a child, and as a result gets out of that, and partly through, I think, owning a record store, if, if I remember correctly, right. and having a very diverse clientele to this record store and getting to know those clientele for who they are. And so his world of concern changes, and you're able to utilize these examples of getting in and getting out of this um, uh, the, the, this white supremacist group or movement um, in order to illustrate certain things in the paper. Yeah, so, and I think... So, go ahead. I'm sorry, and I think that's what's important. What's important is to recognize that, that it's a process and the process looks very similar. As Kristen alluded to when she was describing the links to morality, um, the process looks very similar to get in as it does to get out, right? It's about anchoring, it's about commitment, it's about other people caring for you and you caring about other people, right? And, and the process looks the same, whether it's, whether it's to get into white supremacy as well as, or, or to get out, right? I mean, it's, and I think that that's, it's important to keep that as a focus. The fact that the world of concern changes, that his world of concern changes, speaks to the dynamism, speaks to the fact that this is not, one and done, you know, set it and forget it kind of stuff, that this really is something that is continually happening to all of us. And that this is one of the things that we struggle to capture when we are talking about uh, people's participation uh, in the world. So I wanna, I wanna link this to some vocabulary that's in the institutional literature. You hear about institutional contradictions. And one of the, uh, one of the images that we wanted to um, embrace from people like Mark Ventresca and others who, who in, in, um, in contrast to this idea of simple contradictions is this notion of sedimentation and the complexity that adds to what animates participation in institutional processes. So, you know, he does get out of the, the, the white supremacist movement, but if you look at what the nature of his new embodied world of concern is, he becomes an anti-racist activist, an anti-racism activist, and the community he most wants to serve are those people most vulnerable to being um, swept up into the white supremacist movement. So his world of concern has, has a sedimentation where 
it isn't that he has abandoned necessarily the youth that he, the young people that were his people. He sees his duties to them differently now, in a sense that he he had something called the free radicals move, uh, movement for a while, where he was actually trying to use the the web to reach those kids who would be most likely captured uh, in a sense or trapped in white supremacy. So I hope I'm making myself clear, his world of concern has multiple layers and it's not that those, uh, those earlier layers are lost, but they're reconceived. And um, so the world of concern, as we say in the paper, um, triggers a kind of sense of duty and stewardship for create for those systems that could lead to the well-being of those people important to you. He now sees the well-being of those at-risk youth not through you know hate movements, but through somehow trying to uh, prevent their getting entrapped. Does that make Thanks, sense? I just want to I want to uh, Brian maybe ask you to elaborate a little bit on uh, it will abstract a little bit away from this and think a little bit about the concept of using a single example as something that you revisit through the construction of a conceptual paper. The choice to do that, maybe some trade-offs or difficulties that you might have had in doing that, and any recommendations you would have for anyone else wanting to try this as a sort of theorizing device for, uh, for a, a, a typical conceptual paper like we might see in AMR? Well, I, I think in both this paper and the paper that we worked on together as a team before, we were constantly struggling to find examples of what we were talking about that could communicate these abstract ideas into real world settings. And, and so we were constantly discussing different kinds of, of examples and, and the process is messy. The process is made with fits and starts and a lot of dead ends and a lot of uh, false endings uh, and a lot of throwing examples out and trying to come up with, with other ones to make it clear. And I, and I think, um, again, because we come from different backgrounds, we, we come from different traditions in, in terms of what we study. And so we bring um, both similar uh, uh, examples from based on our real lives and, the, and our shared lives, but as, as friends and, and how we are embedded in similar communities. And then also different, different examples. Um, and how does that communicate and does that make sense? Um, and it gets a little bit back to what we were talking about before about the writing process. Yes, our discussions are generative, but it's in the writing down, not just what we were talking about, but actually trying to construct sentences and paragraphs and sections that communicate and how ideas emerge in that process and ideas get thrown out in that process. And, and it's this constant going back and forth with the writing and then with discussion and then teamwork and, and then going off and thinking about it on our own. And, and so it's a, it's a very, very messy process um, that comes to fruition by engaging in it. I, I might add, you know, I mean, Greg, you ask advice that we might give. Uh, my advice is to try to go with simpler examples if you can. Uh, <laughs> examples that are stylized, examples that communicate your point without overcomplicating. Uh, an example like Chris Picciolini's uh, memoir it's, it's a bit of a high risk gamble because we're engaging, as you said, with just one single example is, and this one single example is actually carrying a fair amount of weight in clarifying what we mean. Uh, it, it took a lot of work, but part of the reason why we landed on this is because so many of the other ideas that we had for examples, which a paper that is this abstract and complex needs examples, but so many of the other examples that we were trying to use, just they just kept falling by the wayside because they were, they either brought baggage that we didn't want into it, or they were too simplistic to really accommodate the fullness of what we were trying to communicate. So my recommendation is go with something simpler if you can. Uh, that's 
at least that's that's one of my takeaways from this from this paper. Thank you. I, I think the use of this example is is really interesting. It's it's not the norm, I don't think, to use one example so centrally. I think it works very well for this paper, and I think having a memoir-length account allows for some of that complexity to come through in the direct quotes that you provide. So if anyone is ever asking me for an exemplar paper that uses a sort of central or focal example in order to illustrate conceptual concepts, I'll certainly be pointing back towards this. So uh, uh, well done on that. Did the reviewers in the process of review push you to make any significant changes, either to examples or to other aspects of the paper that you look back in retrospect and, and sort of uh, 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 just uh, uh, for, for readers who see the finished product, help them understand what might have evolved in the process of review? I think I've repressed all those memories. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's a but re reviewing's not a fun. I mean, uh, responding to reviewers isn't a, a fun and enthralling process, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> Often not. <laughs> Often not. No, you know, but but it, it, yes, they pushed us. Yes, they asked for clarification. Yes, some of the comments seemed off point. Yes, we engaged with every single one of them. I think in that sense. Um, in one way, the process for this manuscript was not that different from what I think all of us experience when we, um, when we engage with the review process across journals with AMR or with other, with, with other great journals. Um, I do think that we were lucky slash blessed slash, you know, well-engineered to have some reviewers that really knew what we were trying to do and they pushed us to keep the, one of the directions that they kept pushing us was to be clear to be comprehensive um which was hard uh because it would raise they would raise contradictions they would raise challenges and and i think so the, so the expertise certainly the expertise that the reviewers brought from my perspective certainly helped improve the paper yeah, there was some, at least one reviewer who's very much um, uh, familiar with uh, American pragmatism, which really uh, informed and helped us a great deal. Um, I want to say everyone, every team should have a Gerardo when it comes to dealing with reviews, because, you know, reviews, uh, you know, can, you know, you, you see them in your heart, can be in your mouth, and like, oh, no, whatever. Um, and Gerardo has an amazing skill to bring you down off the ledge and say, no, this is what they're really asking for. And so um, having someone who is good at interpreting reviews, distilling them and saying, oh, we can soft pedal that, this is really what's central or something like this. He's incredibly astute at that. Um, and, uh, and that helped the process be incredibly, um, Good. I mean, I, I will say that partially it's from working with this team, but the longer I write, the more I actually enjoy review processes because <laughs> they can be unbelievably fruitful. Any, in, any, any little tips, Gerardo, on, 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 on navigating that emotional journey, on removing some of the emotions and getting down to the core? And we, we've actually going to have a, an, an Academy of Management review from the editors about the emotional ah. aspects of going through a, a review. But, but, but because you've been singled out here as the, <laughs> the go-to person to navigate this, Anything that you, you found just helps you re either reframe things or th see things in a slightly different way or just manage your emotions such that you don't become overwhelmed by what you see in a review letter? You, you know what? I, the, the thing that I bring to it, I, and I don't think that I'm actually special in this regard, to be honest, is that I just always think whenever we get a comment that seems that in some way is triggering something, I immediately, the place that I go to is, oh, we didn't explain that well enough, right? I, I immediately go to 
all they have is the writing in front of them. All they have is the manuscript. So they are not, they are not necessarily quizzing our ideas or questioning how we think or how we feel. They're questioning what we wrote. So anytime that there's, that there's a question, uh, there's, they highlight a contradiction or something like that, it's a lot, it's easy, it would, it's easy to sort of go to the emotional place of, well, you're just crazy, you don't understand, or did you not read this carefully? And instead, it's a lot more, it's easier to say, well, we said it, you know, they asked this question, we said it in the introduction and we said it at the end. Maybe we also need to say it in the middle, right? Remind the reader about where it is that we have been, where it is we're going. I mean, it's, so for me, it's just, it's always like, it's in, in engaging the manuscript and engaging the writing, which is really the object through which we communicate, through which we communicate these ideas. And, and, and let's, let me be clear, that doesn't mean that there's not times when I'm also heavily emotionally invested. I, um, I have this friend of mine that um, only opens up reviews on Friday afternoons with a glass of wine. <laughs> and that makes a lot of sense as well, right? I mean, sort of like this is this is the right way because you know that you're going to react. Um, so the best thing to do is to well, what are what are the what are your routines to try to engage it in in a positive way, which is what the reviewers are trying. To, I think for the most part to act in a positive way. We're trying to act in a positive way. It's a shame when those things devolve. Uh, and so partly it's about how do you keep this going in, in a positive direction. Can I well, thank just you. add to that to, to Doug's point, that could have been verbatim scripts from one of our meetings. So one thing that Gerardo does is not just, is not just do what he just described, but he articulates it. That's what, so I think that's what Doug is probably talking about even more so in terms of the, the what Gerardo brings to the team, he literally says all of that to all of us while we're dealing with the review. So it's not just that he's doing it and thinking about it. He, that's the conversation that we would have. So I think that's an important point too, is the articulation of it. We need those reminders in that moment because yeah. you get filled with emotion, you get, you get tense, you get frustrated. You, and so um, someone who's able to remind us of the reality, abstract ourselves a little bit from the scenario. Well, one of the things that's clearly come out of this interview, and, and we're moving towards wrapping up now, but clearly come out of this interview is just um, how much care you take as a team in your writing um, and how you focus on being precise, on uh, utilizing language in very particular ways and of building things up in a, in a systematic way. And, and the one thing I will say that really struck me about this, this paper, which I think is so important and so critical for anyone wanting to embark on this journey of writing theory is that your introduction is outstanding. Every sentence in every paragraph moves the paper forward, help me as a person who's not centrally located in this literature, really understand what you were doing. And I was going to bring it up at some point, um, but you, it, it's evident why that is the case because you've alluded to over so many times how many hours you put into writing, how you collaborate with each other through writing, how you push each other on what's already been written. And, um, and so actually in, in the version that I read, I've got great intro meaning that I'm probably going to share this with my PhD students or with anyone else who's looking for an exemplar of a great intro. So congratulations on that. I'd like to wrap up by just asking for each one of you to potentially provide um, one or two tidbits of advice, suggestions, perspectives that of things that you've learned through writing and working on this paper. It might be a reminder of something we've already said, or it might be something that we haven't alluded to and that you think is important for others who want to embark on this journey and come out with a great piece of work like you've done um, to, 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 to try and get to that place. So maybe if we work in the opposite direction this time, we start with Kristen and work our, our, our way in the, in, in the opposite direction all the way back to Doug. Um, just with 
One bit of advice that you can share to others who want to uh, uh, write an AMR paper. I'm going to say two things really quickly. And the first is um, just in on point on theme with our paper, enjoy it as we've talked about doing the hard work, but enjoying each other. Um, I mean, I think we all feel like this is a, this is a group that we can thrive in, um, have that sense of meaning and connection. So I don't think we would be here if not for that piece of it. So that I just want to acknowledge from our paper that that was important for us. And then the other thing, just really quickly, um, with our earlier paper, we tried very, very hard, the 2014 paper, to fit it into separate levels of analysis. And we just couldn't do it in the end because it was so messy. We, we weren't able to make things as discreet as that. And that carried over into this paper. I think we learned in the process of that paper that we could talk about these different levels in a way that's a little more fluid and dynamic and not quite so cut and dried. And um, that, was, that was very interesting to me. So, you know, being able to build on convention but not be a slave to it, I guess. Fantastic, thank you. Gerardo? Yeah, at the risk of uh, the risk of being somewhat repetitious, you know what I mean, when you're <laughs> considering co-authors choose wisely. <laughs> to be be smart work with people that are that are good enough friends that you will enjoy spending time with them but also um that you can challenge and that people will will sort of accept that and 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 be willing to and be willing to be on what is really a very arduous ride uh crafting these manuscripts is not easy crafting really good ones is especially difficult i think and so um so i think that that's one thing the other thing is that for, for as people are considering um, writing a paper, uh, show it to people, present it. You know, those, those early presentations that we did at those conferences, even though the ideas were maybe not even half-baked, the fact that people engage with them in such a positive way and that they thought that there was something there uh, was something that I think we carried through that we knew we had identified something that was underexplained. We had identified something that required greater um, elaboration. And, and that really kept us, kept us going through those fallow periods when we didn't know exactly what to do. Thank you. Bryant. Yeah, I, I, think, I think building on, on that as well is <clears throat> the importance of getting our, getting our ideas out, um, taking the risks, um, pursuing ideas that we think are important to us, uh, not being afraid to, to, to challenge conventional thinking um, and, and see what happens, see where it goes. Um, I think I read somewhere that Martin Luther said something like, sin boldly, believe more boldly still, that try out the ideas, see where they go, see what happens and, and enjoy the ride. And yeah, as Gerardo says, work with people you admire, work with people you like, uh, work with people you enjoy. Doug, anything to add? Thank you, Brian. As I was listening, I was thinking about a phrase in the paper or an insight from Sarah about um, uh, not taking a spectator's stance, uh, the sociological problem of taking a spectator's stance. We are dealing with complex ideas, but one of the things that happens because of our collaboration is that the human dimension keeps coming in to the abstractions. That's one of the reasons why the, the choice of the memoir worked very well, I think. But um, I think it's, it's important for us to think about the fact that we're dealing with social phenomena and that we want to be on the same side of the fence as the, the, one of the phrases in the paper. So um, I guess we, one of our benefits is that we, we were well prepared to have the human elements keep you know, tapping us on the shoulder, saying, don't get too abstract here. Yeah, yeah, I, I certainly that, that, that idea resonated with me, the fact that there's a, a piece of each one of you in what's in the paper, you're not totally divorcing yourself from what's going on. And that actually 
allows the theorizing to manifest in, in, in a more real way. So um, it's interesting that, uh, uh, that, that you've highlighted that as, as sort of something that you, you're, you're, you're not trying to abstract from a sort of agent perspective where there is no feeling, there's no history, there's no um, uh, emotion or, or uh, uh, sediment as you, as you allude to. Well, thank you. Um, thank you for writing a great paper. Um, I trust that in the, the world of morality, institutional change, um, uh, understanding who does and does not do certain things, we're going to be talking about the concepts of world of concern at the, the, the individual and at the community level going forward based on the work that you've done. Um, it's an, an outstanding paper, a very interesting read, and I think for anyone who's just maybe not in this domain, but looking for an exemplar of an outstanding intro and or of using a, an extended example in a very pragmatic and revealing kind of way, this paper is fantastic. So I appreciate you coming on to the Academy of Management's Origin series, and I look forward to seeing the impact that this paper will have going forward. Much